Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled, entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe here. Today on the Nutritank podcast, we've got a wonderful speaker who's an award-winning registered dietitian and a nutrition professional, holding a degree in nutritional sciences and a master's in dietetics. She has a wide range of experience having worked in both the NHS and as a freelance dietitian. It is no surprise that she is the winner of the British Dietetic Association's Media Spokesperson of the Year due to her wealth of media experience in delivering realistic, no-nonsense nutrition messages. You may recognise her from her appearances on BBC Breakfast, BBC's Eat Well for Less and Sky News, just to name a few. So, we've got the wonderful, the fantastic Priya too. She's a specialist in eating disorders, offering expert advice to patients suffering with anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge eating disorder and other forms of disordered eating. She also specialises in food intolerances, irritable bowel syndrome, weaning, chronic fatigue, and does this all with a non-diet approach. Alongside all her work in dietetics and nutrition, Priya is a Pilates teacher and runs a thriving Pilates studio in Southampton, combining her two passions of fitness and nutrition. What does she not do, you may ask? So, without further ado, let's hear it for Priya. Yes. Let's get this thing started. Hi, Priya. Thanks so much for coming on the pod today. So I've given you an intro and everything, but in your own words, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, I am a dietitian, slightly different perhaps to standard dietitians. I am 100% freelance, so that means I'm self-employed and I do all kinds of work. I work with brands, I do media work, including television and radio, I write articles, and I also do clinical work as well. Bro, so no day's the same from what it sounds like. (laughs) Very exciting. And that's actually what I really love about my job, so Mm -hmm. I love the fact that I have so many different projects on the go, and I'm also a Pilates teacher, so I get my de-stress time from my clinical work there. That's so lovely, a real holistic practice you've got going on. Yes, it is. And so tell us, how did you get interested in nutrition and dietetics? What motivated you to actually train as a dietitian? So that's a slightly roundabout story. When I was in sixth form, I remember sitting in the careers office, flicking through one of those careers books, thinking, what am I going to do? And in my heart of hearts, I knew I wanted to go into something medical related, but I also knew that I was not going to get an A in physics, because that just wasn't really going to happen. And I remember seeing a dietitian and like reading the information and going, oh, that's interesting, and that was it, closed the book and moved on. We then fast 
good enough grades to get into medicine. So I ended up thinking, well, what am I going to do at university? I loved science. I specifically loved biology and chemistry. You put those two together and you get biochemistry. So off I went to go and study my biochemistry degree, and then I fell into doing a nutrition module. I'd always been interested in food and nutrition, and my parents had a hotel. My mum had specialised in special diets for people with diabetes or low-fat diets and people who had food allergies and intolerances. And this was before any of that was fashionable, so it was quite unusual. And I'd learned to cook with her, and I then ended up working in quite a lot of restaurants because people knew that I could cook. And this was when I was a teenager. So I guess the nutrition side of me evolved from that. So I always blame my mum. Um, for my love of cooking and nutrition and so after doing a few nutrition modules it just ended up that my degree became a degree in nutritional sciences. I did a summer working in a lab doing some research and realized that was not for me, I didn't love it Um, and so when it came to do the interviews for dietetics I thought well actually that sounds quite good, it involves working with people which is what I really really want to do. And I just fell into it, really, because I got through the interviews, and so off I went to study dietetics, and my goodness, am I glad that I did now. So I think, you know, for people who are looking at careers, it can be really hard to know what you want to do, and sometimes you've just got to try a few things and then see. Definitely. And especially if you don't get into something first time around, but you know you're passionate about it. If you've got an idea of the direction you want to go down, absolutely, perseverance. And yeah, I blame my mum for my love of food as well. So, <laughs> got that in common there. Um, so you mentioned this was quite a while ago and you've been uh, practicing for years. I know you're super experienced. How do you think the field of dietetics has changed from when you first started out to now? So when I first started out, I was a child who had come from a self-employed family. As I said, my parents had a hotel. And I knew that I didn't want to work in the NHS full-time and for the whole of my career. I knew I wanted to be self-employed. And I was quite unusual in that I remember when I went along to one of the freelance dietitian groups meetings... And I said to them, I am going to start out self-employed from the start. I will have some clinical work in the NHS, but I'm always going to have some self-employed work now. They said, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's not the route that you go down to be self-employed. You have to do your clinical work first in a hospital setting. And after you've got so many years experience, then you go self-employed. However, I don't really listen to the norm on these things, and I just decided I was going to do it. And I was so lucky that some super experienced dietitians took me under their wing, and they helped me, and they moulded me. And in actual fact, I had an email from one of them this week, um, and I've been asked to speak at um, to give a lecture. And she sent me an email saying, well done, I know how hard you've worked yeah. over the years to develop yourself to get to this point. So even now, all these years on, she's still encouraging me and giving me advice. So that's kind of the route I went down as I started off on this this kind of exploration of 
what do I want my career to look like? Mm-hmm. And I guess I've, I've moulded it myself as I've gone, gone along. So I quite often turn down projects if I know that they aren't a good fit for me or I pass them on to other people. And I'll also knock on people's doors and say, look, I'm really interested in this. Do you want to work with me? Amazing. And you've honed in on such an important point on the power of having a good mentor. I know that that's what's really helped mould me too. So many doctors, dietitians um, of an older generation who've taken me on when I realised I had such a strong interest in the field of nutrition. And it means so much. It must be so fulfilling for you to still have that contact with her and, yeah, chats and work <laughs> and stuff. And I love the fact that within the field of dietetics, there are people that I can just ring up and I can say, I'm a bit confused or I'm stuck or I'm not sure, have I done this right? And I really value your advice. Can you give it to me? And they will. Yeah. You never have anybody saying, absolutely not. I'm not going to help you. I will not read that over for you. It's such a kind, caring profession in that way, I think. Completely. And I think healthcare is like that. It's more about collaboration than competition. Whereas, you know, influencers online, it's all about competing and like who has better style with what they post and all of that. But. Um, healthcare profession in the NHS it is all about collaboration and having networks and being in a multidisciplinary team and the field of dietetics it's small like there are not that many of you in the UK and it and I realized that from making so many friends with dietitians it's such a small world everyone knows each other and I, I absolutely love it um, and I was actually having a chat with um, Hala yesterday from Nutrition Rocks and I said that I was having you on and she was saying how you had some sort of crossover with the job you're in now or something with disordered eating so really small world we're gonna have her on too and um so speaking of disordered eating I know that is your specialist area and you're a fountain of knowledge when it comes to that could you tell our listeners how you got to focusing on that area and how yeah how your practice works now so this is kind of the story of my life I fall into things by accident are we still there yeah I've lost you oh we are um yes so this is kind of the story of my life I fall into things by accident so I did not set out planning to be a specialist in eating disorders however I did know that I really liked the area of mental health having done some work on that in my clinical placements as a student, I qualified and then there were too many dietitians in my area for the number of jobs. And we were all basically as good as each other, all had the same qualifications, all going for the same job. So I didn't get my first job and I ended up doing admin work, which was not my dream. Um, And then I started off doing some locum work and off I went and I was actually traveling from Southampton to the Isle of Wight every day doing this locum work. Then a post came up in Southampton in the community and I knew I loved community work, but it was eating disorders. I didn't feel like I had enough experience at that point, but I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I may as well apply for the job and see, which is what I did. And I remember there were about six of us going for the job and I got the job. And the feedback was when I said, why have I got this job? And I said, because you are very resilient. Mm -hmm. And that's been a phrase that stuck with me throughout my career, is this idea of being resilient. 
Um, so I then was in a really fortunate but scary place because I hadn't done a lot of eating disorders. I was quite newly qualified. And I then had a unit that had not had a dietitian for three years. And I had the job of setting up the dietetic service. Um, which in a way was scary, but also just meant that I could mould it mm. to the way that suited me. And I was in that job for about eight years, I think, and absolutely loved it. I, I was gutted to leave mm. because I really enjoyed it. It meant I did um, mainly outpatient work because we didn't have an actual inpatient unit, but we did do meal support and have day patients coming in to eat with us. So I got to do lots of work running groups and sitting and eating with people as well. Very sociable, it sounds. <laughs> yes, it was. And so you were, were you working part-time then? I was working three days a week sure. and then I was building up my freelance career on the side I then had a baby, and at the time, people said, oh, when you have a baby, it's going to change your life, and I thought, no, it's not. (laughs) It did. It completely changed my life, and I decided then, when I was on maternity leave, that I was going to jump off the cliff and go fully freelance, Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went back after maternity leave for a few months, and then I quit, um, and thought, sadly, that that was the end of eating disorders for me. And I do remember being heartbroken over it because I really loved the work. It then turned out that there was a need for it privately. And now that is the bulk of my clinical work is eating disorders. I do some other things as well. So I do um, work with IBS and um, chronic fatigue is another area I work in as well. But it is mainly eating disorders. Sure. And just for our non-medical listeners, can you define IBS and explain what it is? And also the same with chronic fatigue. So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. So the symptoms of that could be things like bloating or diarrhea or constipation or abdominal pain after you've eaten. Um, And then chronic fatigue syndrome is, well, it's it's a hard one to describe that actually because we don't really know why it starts but it's excessive tiredness I think is the easy way to describe that mm-hmm. and you can't really explain why it happens but the people I work with there need to really focus on what they're eating to make sure they're getting enough nutrition and we work on their energy levels and on their meal structure as well. Sure that was very clear thank you and so in terms of your work now like you said it's all freelance it seems like it was a very bold move and one that you pulled off so well and it would be great for you to just empower some of our listeners who are maybe in the freelance space or they're teetering on the edge of it especially with covid now and working from home tell us some top tips you have for getting your business off the ground i would say a lot of it comes down to the planning. Now, that's not something I did. I just launched in a bit like a bull in a china shop and went full pelt at it, and I was fortunate that it worked for me. Having said that, I had had about 10 years of building up my freelance work beforehand, so I had contacts, I had some regular contracts. So I think making contact with people that you know and seeing is there any way you can get involved with what they're doing? So 
I was doing some contract work with the chronic fatigue service, for example, Mm -hmm. running groups for them, contacting companies locally and seeing, could you go in and do some workplace related groups for them, for example. Mm -hmm. It's all in who you know, and then being bold enough to knock on the door and say, hi, I'm really (laughs) great at what I do, and I can help you. Do you want me to come and do that? I think my other top tip would be to know your field. So to really know what you're good at and what area that you want to focus on. Because something like nutrition and dietetics is so wide. There are so many areas that you could work in. I know that I love mental health and I know that I really love media work. So that's where I tend to put a lot of my focus. So knowing those and then having a mentor is also really important and a supportive group of professionals around you who will pull you up and say, uh, don't think you've done that quite right. How about you rethink that? But also will support you. So even this week, I've sent over some information to two other dietitians and said, please, could you read this for me and can you correct it for me? And they've done that. And they've literally red penned it and then sent it back so that I know that I'm working within guidelines and I'm being responsible. Bro, yeah, no, you've definitely highlighted the power of peer-to-peer support. I love getting my friends to check over my work too. And yeah, self-assurance. You can't go anywhere unless, you know, you're sure of yourself because especially when you're dealing with vulnerable people who are coming to you for healthcare support, if you're not sure in your own abilities, you can't expect them to have that trust in you. And you really have to build that in the therapeutic relationship. So fabulous tips. And so you mentioned you're really passionate about eating disorders and the connection with food and mood. I wanted to get your opinion on whether you think that the connection between food and mood has been something that perhaps Western society has somewhat overlooked in recent years. And I know it's really coming to the forefront, the connections between the power of what you eat and, you know, the impact it has on your mental health. But it has been somewhat overlooked, I'd say. Yeah, I think it has been overlooked. I think also, um, to some extent, nutrition has been overlooked in our Western society. And we've changed our diet quite substantially over the last 50 years and not really thought about the impact that was going to have. I think nutrition has been quite a new up-and-coming science. And because of that a lot of the ways that we eat and the foods that we eat have also been overlooked. Absolutely. And so what kind of changes have you seen in more recent years with your work, especially from your consumers, your clients, and what they want from you in regards to advice around food and mood? I've noticed that people are wanting a lot more information. They really want to know, what does this food, what does this nutrient do? How much should I be having and how do I know I'm having enough? It's become a lot more detailed and I don't always think that that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. So I do find myself railing people back and saying, actually, we don't need to be counting how much of a nutrient we're having. We just need to be eating a balance of foods. And I think there's also been a move away from people cooking and knowing how to prepare food, I've noticed that. So I remember running cooking courses maybe five years ago and I had people who didn't know how to prepare a carrot 
for example. Mm-hmm. And that shocked me because I come from a house where I was taught to cook from scratch. Like, how do you not know how to prepare a carrot? But there is that level and that lack of information out there. I think that's really important that we're sharing tips on how to cook simple, nutritious meals because how we eat really impacts our health and our mental health. Absolutely. And even the act of cooking is therapeutic and a real mind-body-soul connection because it's something that really connects you with nature. You know, getting fresh vegetables or at the moment because of COVID, frozen, whatever it is, that is really a way to connect with what is out in nature and put those nutrients into your body. And so I think we have slightly moved away from um, prioritizing cooking, especially with the rise of delivery food apps and, you know, the easiness within the 21st century of all these mobile um, services. So it is really important to harness a healthy relationship with food and for people to know what it is that they're putting into their body. But like you say, there is, I guess, a fine line of not getting too obsessive about the minutiae. And so I wanted you to kind of just tell our listeners about the two ends of the spectrum you deal with um, within eating disorders. So um, you deal with binge eating disorder uh, and then you also deal with anorexia nervosa. So tell us a little bit about how management varies and commonalities. So binge eating disorder, um, I would say, is often the harder end of the spectrum to deal with I find because it's quite normalized so people think you know I'm just overeating I don't have a problem or society views it in that way and actually it can be um, really hard to recover mm-hmm. from something like that so I would say the commonalities between working with someone with binge eating disorder and anorexia, it's actually, it all comes down to helping them plan what are they going to eat and helping them work on their relationship with food and their relationship with their body. So learning to love their body the way that is, learning to love themselves as they are, and then thinking, how am I going to therefore nourish myself and look after myself? So I don't just focus on food with people. I will be focusing on their motivation, looking at things like where are they now? Where do they want to be in a year's time? Where do they want to be in 10 years' time? How are they going to achieve their goals? And therefore, why do they need to look after themselves in order to get there? Mm-hmm. So we'll do some work around that. We'll do some work around body image with people. Um, and that would be both ends of the spectrum. And also do some work around their relationship with food so how was it when they were a child when they were eating how is it now what food rules do they have that are maybe causing them to get stuck with the way that they're eating and are there you know food groups that they're choosing to not eat or that if they choose to eat they overeat and so therefore what are we going to do about that So I guess I have quite a fluid approach to things Mm -hmm. because I like people to learn to take responsibility themselves. Mm -hmm. So I will ask them a lot of questions around what do you think the problem is now? How could we solve that? And I'm there more as a support Mm -hmm. and as a reminder more than anything. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it has to come from the patient in order for them to get onto that therapeutic journey to recovery. 
and, and they're the ones yeah. eating the food exactly I, I'm, I'm not sat there you know watching them eat mm. it or or forcing them to eat it and forcing someone to eat doesn't necessarily mm. help long term it might help there and then so that they get past a stage but it's not going to bring them into long-term recovery sure because there has to be a will absolutely and so you talk a lot about body image and I know you do a lot of work in the media I just wanted to get your take on how you think the media and modern Western society perhaps, you know, propels uh, harmful stereotypes when it comes to body image and how you've maybe seen that translate into your consultations with your clients and the issues they have around their body image. I definitely see on a clinical daily basis that social media is driving thoughts around body image and disordered eating. I see that a lot specifically on Instagram. I know there was some research that came out about that as well. Um, So one of the things that I try and encourage people to do is to actually unfollow anybody who is sharing unhelpful messages about diets or how they view their body or showing in the screenshot perfect pictures of their body and things that are actually unrealistic and unachievable but it definitely does have an impact so a a client I've got at the minute has had to come off Instagram because she can't censor her feed enough and when she does start following more body positive things her friends are actually commenting on why you're following that Mm -hmm. um so it's not even just what you're seeing it's other people's views Mm -hmm. of, of who you're following that seems to also have an impact sure no that seems completely unhelpful to someone's uh positive self thoughts so I mean, it is a huge shame to have to remove social media because obviously it's a way to connect with people. But at the same time, there's so many harmful things. And sometimes when you follow the same type of account, the algorithm always feeds you. So you follow more and more. Yes. And then you just become in an you know echo chamber of all these, you know, perhaps really negative accounts. Um, and I agree with you it's not realistic so much of the time there's photoshop involved you know and it's not the full truth it's a snapshot of someone's routine in life and it's yeah it's a huge shame that it can have such an impact on someone's psyche and change the way they think about themselves Um, and so you talk about um, some of the brands you're working with Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how that kind of work works and how you pick the brands that are in line with your ethos, especially with body image, um, to promote your work? I wouldn't say I do a huge amount of brand work. I do do some, and that's probably because I turn a lot down. So I have to make sure that anybody, any brand that I work with um, is meeting up with the evidence you know is it scientific so I quite often will get supplement companies or people who are you know promoting certain ingredients in a way that I know isn't evidence-based and we haven't got the research to back it up in which case that would be an instant no I'm sorry I can't I can't work with that Mm -hmm. Um, so I always choose brands I work with thinking about is it something I would use as something I would be on board with recommending to my friends and my family 
is it something that has got some science behind it, some credible science that we actually can say there is some truth to it? Um, and also, what are the messages, the key messages that the brands are giving out? So, you know, if it's a slimming pill, I'm certainly not going to be on board mm-hmm. with that because that's not going to be working with my thoughts around body image and non-diets and eating mm-hmm. disorders. And also, there's probably not going to be very much science behind it. There might be a little bit, but it might not be that credible. And I imagine that the pictures and the images that they're going to be putting alongside that, again, are not going to tally up with my mindset. Absolutely. So I guess mm-hmm. there's a very personal element to working with brands. Um, and there will be other dietitians who would take on brands that I wouldn't work with, and they may be quite evidence-based, but you know that's entirely up to them. There's always a personal choice to these things. Sure. And um, I've seen a rise with uh, over the years since I've been on Instagram with some brands, like you mentioned, promoting slimming pills, slimming teas, whatever, and then some really promoting the whole clean eating movement and I know that was quite a huge thing that started happening online the whole idea of clean eating and then it actually led to a new term um, actually deemed somewhat of an eating disorder which is orthorexia so I wanted you to tell our listeners what exactly is clean eating why you think um, or hypothesize why you think it arose and what orthorexia actually means so orthorexia was a phrase that came out in 1998 so it's fairly new to us still but i guess it wasn't really used that much initially and it's come from that phrase clean eating so this is an obsession with eating healthily so eating foods that the person deems to be pure healthy clean nutritious and cutting out foods that therefore they see to be unhealthy and not good for the body dirty <laughs> dirty yeah dirty foods which just sounds a bit crazy doesn't yeah, it but it does. that, that is really where it came from and it was this this desire for people to really look after their bodies and to nourish them which is great but then got taken to the extreme i think social media had a big role in that because people were seeing plates mm. of beautifully prepared nutritious foods and thinking well that's what I have to eat I can't eat a donut I have to eat in this way and the problem for some people is that they can have a trigger in them which could be genetic um, or it could be linked to many other things where they could become quite rigid and quite obsessed with food and that obsession then leads to anxiety daily around the way they eat, the way they socialise, it can affect mental health, it can affect just your everyday, day-to-day life. So some of the signs of somebody suffering from orthorexia could be that they are being very extreme about checking ingredients, about the foods that they're choosing to eat. They're cutting out entire food groups, so maybe they won't eat carbohydrates anymore, or they'll only eat whole grain carbohydrates, and they won't eat anything that's white and refined. They've cut out saturated fat and sugar, as an example. So there was definitely a major drive around not being able to eat sugar. Um, And then only being able to eat foods that have got a label on them that says that they are natural or that they are unprocessed 
would be another one. And spending lots of time thinking and preparing food and not being able to eat foods that other people have made Mm -hmm. or to eat out because you don't know what's gone into those foods and into those meals. So it can be quite isolating if you're having to you know stop social arrangements and eating out in nice restaurants for birthdays and celebrations because you're always worried about the ingredients and is it cooked in this oil that oil butter whatever and so it must be quite a frustrating illness and almost something that has come from pop culture but has kind of gone off kilter so quite hard to manage i'm sure Um, Because in some ways, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the issues with obesity and issues around too much processed food and, you know, um, energy dense, nutrient poor foods. And so it must be really hard to counsel people around it because in a way they have they have good intentions because they want their bodies to be healthy. But it just goes a little bit off kilter. So how would you help I don't know if you have any clients how would you help them um kind of get back to an equilibrium that is a little a little less obsessive that is the eternal question I think when you're working in this field and it really depends on the person so everybody I take on an individual basis I think the work that I that I do does really contradict a lot of the work that's going on in the public health arena about around obesity. Sure. So I have quite a few comments and conversations with fellow dietitians and professionals because they'll be promoting something that is good in terms of public health to do with obesity. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, but that's going to really cause problems for somebody who is in recovery from an eating disorder. Mm. So there is definitely this push and this pull between how things are. So even a food label, if you've got a food label that's covered in red lights, then somebody who has got orthorexia is going to go, well, I can't eat that because there's red lights on there. And I would be saying to them, well, actually either try not to look at the label or let's think why are there red lights it's got nuts in it well nuts are good for the body and also fair enough it's got some butter it's got some sugar in it it's got some salt in it we need to have some of those foods so the way i try and work with people is we would write out a list of maybe the foods that they feel comfortable eating to start with so what are your green light foods Okay, they're all the ones that are safe. Now, what are your red foods that you absolutely could not eat if someone put them in front of you? And then what are the foods that are in the middle that you certainly can push yourself to eat if you have to, but you're not that comfortable? And then we would talk about those foods and why they're in those different groups. And then I would use my knowledge and my education to maybe help move those beliefs around Mm -hmm. if some of them are not quite true because they've pulled things from the media and from the internet. And then we would start to make a plan as to how can we therefore change that eating around. Sure. And it just seems that you're using your multifaceted knowledge. You're telling your client, you know, it's a three-dimensional thing that you shouldn't think about nuts as bad, even though it's a red light. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think maybe the food labeling system is a bit one-dimensional with the red lights and green lights, and that has in turn translated to the consumer, the individual, an issue around their choices? I don't think there is a perfect answer for food labeling. Mm. So my kind of work 
with eating disorders, that side of me would say that it would be great if we didn't have food labels. So I've certainly had to work with some people where I've said, right, buy bread that is pre-sliced and that has no nutrition labels on it. You know, go for things as much as you can without labels on because that's been better for them. But then on the other hand, you know, society is not just full of the people I work with. Mm. So we can't have something that is going to tick boxes for every segment of the population. Exactly. No one size fits all. And that's what's tricky. Mm -hmm. That is what's tricky. For sure. So on to the other end of the population. So less of who you work with. Um, So in terms of those who are overweight and obese and um, who are having to perhaps have a lot more public health messages targeted at them, could you just tell our listeners what you think about the idea of reducing food and weight gain and metabolic health to simply calories in and calories out? Is there more to the story? Because I know there are a lot of public health campaigns and documentaries that illustrate it really is all about calories in and calories out and why, as a Western society, we all eat too much with, you know, um, the size of plates having grown and all these different factors. Could you give your stance on that? I think that's like a three-hour lecture in there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's... It's as a much really as you can, one yeah. Because on the one hand, we're taught that it is about calories in and calories out, but I think that is quite a gross oversimplification, because there are so many factors that affect the way that we eat and that affect our energy balance and that affect, you know, just our overall lifestyle. So we've also got to think about the different segments of the population we have and what's going on for them. So if we talk about food on too simple a basis, then are we excluding people in food poverty? How's it going to affect them? So this is where nutrition becomes so, so complicated and having a broad public health message is actually a difficult thing to achieve so that it suits everyone. I don't think it can, which is where as professionals, we come in to really tailor the message to the person who is in front of us and when it comes to calories in and calories out and should we be working with that well again I think it comes down to what does that person need in front of you so yes they may be obese they they may have some health issues but actually for them right now what are they ready to change so is it that they're not going to make any change in terms of their eating, but they could be more active or they could work on their sleep. One way I really like to think about working with people who are wanting to focus on weight loss, so I do work sometimes with people who want to Mm -hmm. lose some weight, but I always say to them, actually, that isn't my area and I don't work with diets, but what I can do is I can help you improve the overall quality of what you're eating and the balance. So what can we add in to make your diet even more nutritious and that will give you more energy and help you feel better about yourself? So it might be that we would focus on fruit and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And the aim would be that over time, as as the balance of their diet improves and they're eating more of those types of foods, that they wouldn't need maybe as much of the, the crisps and the chocolate and the biscuits 
not that those foods are bad so I don't ever say to someone don't eat something Mm. or that food is bad but if you were to eat chocolate digestive biscuits all day how are you going to feel Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel pretty sluggish and rubbish and a bit sicky by the end of the day so why not just have a couple of those and really enjoy them and then let's balance out what you're having for the rest of the day exactly and that's what our job as professionals is to really yeah. help people find those simple messages where they can make small changes that they can sustain over time Exactly. And I love that ethos, small changes over time, because I know from family and friends who are obsessed with the kind of diets that come around and try and enact them. And it always seems that they go for a while and then they start to fail. So I guess it is quite important to just try and change the relationship with food. And I love the connection you draw between what are you eating and how does it make you feel? Because then you're creating more of that conscious connection with uh, the food choices you make. And um, so I wanted to just get your take on what you think about the idea and the word diet and how that kind of pervades through society. On the one hand, I don't like the word because I think it's been taken out of context and it's just been misused. Mm. So... We've had every fad diet under the sun and they all have the word diet associated with them, which makes the word diet feel like it's dirty and it's not a positive word. But then on the other hand, there are therapeutic diets and there are diets that are there for beneficial purposes. So, you know, if you've got somebody with epilepsy, then you might use the ketogenic diet in quite a different way to how it's being used on social media. Um, or if you've got somebody with high blood pressure, then we've got the DASH diet as well. So we do have positive ways to be using the word. I think it's one of those words we almost need to reclaim Mm. and show the benefits of it and the good side of it rather than it all being about say no to diets, Mm. which is the hashtag I must admit I do use. But there's, you know... There's the, mm-hmm. the more positive side and the more negative side of it. Yeah, lots of nuance there. And so what's been the most ludicrous fad diet you've ever come across that's just made you chuckle a bit? Made me chuckle? Yeah. Um, I think going back many, many years, the cabbage soup diet was quite ridiculous. Um, but one of the ones that hasn't made me chuckle, but it's just made me really, really cross, has been the IV drips. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. one's been very dangerous, and that's quite a recent one. And um, some of the weight loss diets around the skinny lollipops and things like that, and the skinny tea. Right, and I agree. I see something like mm-hmm. those ones just make me cringe. I'm like, how can drinking a certain type of tea make you skinny? And how is that even allowed on the market? How, how does that work? I don't understand. Because as a dietitian, if I'm working with a brand, I have to check every single bit of the wording that's there and then it mm. all stands up. And yet these other things make it onto the market that are just ludicrous. There needs so, to yeah. be more regulation. There really does. There, there should be. I think also around the media. So some of the things that I, I actually now don't watch that many nutrition related programs on the television Mm. because it makes me too cross and I get very ranty and um yeah so I try not to watch too many programs like that so I don't 
get my blood pressure too high. But again, there should be more regulation around the things that are being said need to be backed up and need to actually be true. And then the way it's put together needs to be shown in the correct light. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as a health professional, I might go onto a, onto a media show and say a few phrases and then they can be used and be taken out of context. I know, that's you hear that all too many times. I, I do know what you mean there. And that's the worry because you want a health expert, but you just don't know how it can be misconstrued, for sure. Yes, yeah, it is really concerning. And so I understand why people are dubious about doing media work because of that. Sure. And what did you think about, I think it was in um, the media like a couple months ago, about having food items with the amount of exercise you'd need to do to burn off that food on the labelling. Back to our food labelling discussion. Yeah, so um, I know that's something that has come up before in terms of food labelling with people um, talking about having how many steps you need to do or how many minutes you need to exercise to um, earn your donuts. Once again, I think that's almost putting food in a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So are we going to do that for packets of apples? as well as for chocolate cakes um you know are we putting food on a on a sliding scale of this is good and this is bad so mm-hmm. therefore if you eat the bad food it makes you a bad person i think that would be one of my thoughts on that and also with the idea of exercising you know exercise is not something that should be negative exercise is something that should be enjoyable and something that makes our bodies feel good and helps with our mental health and our overall feel good factor rather than being a punishment because you've had a slice of cake absolutely i don't think we can count the calories that we eat accurately enough unless we're going to burn them all up and work out the energy content um and and then we can't also accurately work out how much we've exercised Mm -hmm. there's some real flaws in just the initial thought process but then also there's a massive flaw in the logic around talking about if you've eaten something you need to exercise it off Mm -hmm. that's not how our bodies work and Mm. ultimately that's not how our mindsets should work around food food is something that nourishes us that tastes really delicious that we enjoy that gives goodness to our bodies and to our souls and so is exercise so we don't want to be having this sliding scale of i've eaten x so therefore i need to exercise x so i don't think that's a very helpful way of looking at it at all and it's it could potentially be something that could trigger someone who's in recovery from an Mm. eating disorder or send someone down that route if they started feeling that's the way they need to act because there shouldn't be guilt and shame you know around having a meal having a snack and thinking oh now i need to burn that off it's about balance and routine and exactly you know, my children, so one of my children has just poked her head around the door and said to me, can we have some chocolate Easter egg? And I love the fact that my children know that it's okay. Yes, certainly, go and have your chocolate, but you're not going to eat loads and loads of chocolate in one day because it's going to make you feel really rubbish and you're not going to want to eat your dinner later <laughs> and you're really sick. They yeah. don't see chocolate as a bad thing. They see it as... I'm going to have it, I'm going to enjoy it, and then I'm going to get on with the rest of my day. 
Yeah. And they're not then going to say, right, now I need to go and do 50 star jumps on the track <laughs> because I've had an Easter egg. Yeah. But they may end up running around anyway because naturally that's just what they do. Yeah, and that's why I just really advocate for the intuitive eating kind of movement it just really yeah makes a lot more sense and doesn't put as much of a burden on your psyche with guilt and shame for sure yeah and, I totally agree. yeah and so on to the topic of exercise being good for the soul I know that you are a Pilates teacher which is something I'm very passionate about as well because my wonderful mother has been practicing as a Pilates teacher for 20 years and um, she even got it into my school not that I really wanted to have my mom teach me as my afternoon games teacher um, but I wanted to hear about how you started running your own studio because you seem like a massive self-starter and really powerful with your freelance work um, so more tips for our listeners who are interested in the exercise space so tell us a little bit about how you got into it why you chose pilates over um, other exercise disciplines because you know everyone prefers something and it's good to have individual choice so go on once again it's all by accident i just <laughs> fall into these things it's the story of my life um so i couldn't get a job as a dietitian i was going to the gym quite a lot going to classes and got to know the gym instructors and they said oh why don't you train and we will give you a couple of classes a week and it can be an extra source of income whilst you're waiting to get a job I did that and I started off teaching step aerobics and all the high intensity stuff so I did spin and I did legs bums and tums and all that kind of stuff and I loved it and then they asked me to train in Pilates and I said no because Pilates is slow and it's a load of rubbish and I refused and eventually they persuaded me to do it and I remember going to meet with a um, Pilates teacher who actually ended up training me in the end, wow. a little bit later down the world. And she got hold of me and she made me do Pilates with her on a one-to-one basis <laughs> and showed me how hard it was. And then I was sold. So I then went and I did the training and I set up a couple of classes myself just in the community and I had a baby. And then babies, it turns out, need a lot of attention and they feed a lot. And so <laughs> I started teaching from my home because I couldn't get to the places I was meant to be going to. And it, the rest is just history, as in we got I got more and more inquiries coming through. So put on another class and then I had more inquiries, so I put on another class. And we went from two classes to 16 classes in 18 months. Wow. It just kind of mm. did it all by itself. So I I never set out to have a plus six studio. It was I was the girl who used to find ways to get out of PE. That was me and my mum was teaching. She wrote my <laughs> off she wrote my off games notes and I was supposed to be in her class. That was me. And then <laughs> yeah, I'm into it now. <laughs> a fitness studio. So my studio currently, because of COVID-19, we are fully online. So I've got um, classes every day running online. But I specialize in pregnancy and postnatal. That's kind of my passion. But normally my studio is actually my garage that has been converted. And I love it. It's one of the happiest spaces in my house because it's just chilled out and it's got twinkly fairy lights and big mirrors and 
it's free of children. Yeah. Um, as much as I love my children, but it is just a nice, quiet, calm space. Oh, yeah, no, that's the exact same with my mum. Our garage at home is her Pilates studio and it's her happy place away from all yeah. the madness. Yeah. And no, it's so fantastic you've got that during um, yeah this time in lockdown as well as a real restorative place to go and nourish your body and mind and it's fantastic. And so you mentioned that you do a bit of postnatal Pilates um, do you think that there are other realms within kind of clinical practice to involve Pilates in and specific conditions or anything like that? There has been some evidence that's come out around irritable bowel syndrome and yoga. I have seen that. And in my mind, I group Pilates into that same category because I think it's that slow movement where we're quite mindful and we're concentrating on our bodies and having that awareness. There has been um, also some information I saw about um, diabetes and breathing and singing. Oh, wow. That came out a while ago. Um, I can't quite remember where that was or how strong the evidence was there. But that also made me think about, you know, the way that we breathe helps calm our whole bodies down. Mm. What is the impact of that around sickness and illness and looking after ourselves? And I think there's great power in having some space in our lives where we do something that helps us calm everything that is in our body and in our minds and gives us that space. So I know a lot of people who come to me, in fact, currently with everything online, I'm getting messages from people saying, thank you so much for continuing to do things online because it's that hour in my week where I can switch off and I can de-stress and I come out of it feeling so much better and it changes my thought processes and my mental health as well. I couldn't agree more. I know from a personal basis, it has such a holistic impact on my mind being hard, like exercise and cooking for that matter. I do it very mindfully and, you know, you're not distracted. You're focusing on your body or you're focusing on preparing the food in front of you. And um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more with the fact that it allows you to switch off. And really the science behind that is with the breath work is you're activating your parasympathetic drive. And for our listeners who don't know what that is, it's part of the nervous system that's in charge of rest and digest. So um, your digestive system will uh, be flowing better, which is why I'm, you know, hypothesizing it's having a good impact on things like irritable bowel syndrome and um, allowing you to uh, feel calmer and then your sympathetic drive the other part of the nervous system is fight or flight so when you've got all that adrenaline flowing through your system um, as if you're being chased by a tiger in the wild that's how it's kind of worked with evolution but within our modern lives now it's just small stresses that are giving us that kind of uh, crazy adrenaline rush and it's impacting sleep it's impacting food choice and so it's really good to find that time to have that rest um i don't know the evidence behind it but um just to tell you and our listeners my mom actually uh, t- works with a multiple sclerosis charity and it's part of a social prescription scheme and she teaches uh 
multiple sclerosis clients, Pilates, and she has seen the most incredible results. Um, it's, you know, it's their one hour a week. They come sometimes with their carer and she's seen them being able to activate muscles that they've not been able to use properly in years. And so it really is hugely beneficial. Um, and yeah, it doesn't need to be, you know, boring. Like some people think with the slow movement, it can be really fun and exciting too, and really good for the core. Um, and so we're starting to finish off. Um, you've been absolutely fantastic and have just <laughs> oozed out knowledge. As you know, I'm a medical student and I'm really passionate about promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle education within medical training for healthcare professionals to help their own uh, health and well-being, but also to help the patients sat in front of them. So we've discussed um, diets and um, exercise. How do you think uh, medical students can talk to their patients about diet in a useful way um, without making it harmful, especially when it comes to weight? Instead of focusing on weight as being the big thing in the room, it's getting to know that person if you've got the time and encouraging them to find some health behaviours that they can change. That doesn't have to be diet. So thinking holistically about everything that's going on in their life how can they find something that's going to help them feel better overall and improve their overall life so that could be sleep it could be exercise and movement it could be that it's diet or adding something in to make their diet healthier and more balanced it could be that it's some kind of relationship work so we've got to think actually weight is not all about what we eat there are so many other factors coming into this. And we've also got to have that acceptance around, actually, weight isn't always a negative thing. So just because someone is overweight doesn't mean that they are going to have an increased risk of something. It could do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And actually, why is that person overweight? What's gone on in their life? And mm -hmm. as, a, you know, as a compassionate healthcare professional, what can we do to help them? Absolutely. Well, to finish off on a bit of fun, I want you to tell me what is your last supper? So your ideal starter, main and dessert. Okay, so I am a big seafood lover, so I would have to go for, as a starter, some king prawns and some scallops. And I'm also wheat intolerant, quite badly, so I would have to have some crusty French baguettes and butter in there as well. I can't normally eat that. <laughs> and then for my main course, because I am half Sri Lankan, it would have to be a selection of Sri Lankan curries. So when I go out to Sri Lankan, they give you all the little curries on the banana leaves, and we have this massive big selection of like 10 different curries. I just love that. And then my dessert would have to be chocolate eclairs with mango, because they're two of my favourite things. Oh, wow. Interesting combo. Yeah, it's not really a combo that normally goes together, but I was thinking about it. I was like, well, I'd have to have mango in there somewhere because like, mango for me is just divine. And chocolate eclairs, again, I can't really eat mm. because of the wheat component, but I have such fond memories of having chocolate eclairs um, on a holiday to Paris as a oh. child. I know, and you've just highlighted like the really emotive side of food and how 
it's you know helps uh, like like with smells it helps you uh, remember things and remember it connects you to stories and places that you've been it's really incredible um yes. and with the mango so you said you're half sri lankan you do you like those really sweet ones that are kind of those smaller alfonso ones you do you know the ones i'm talking about like those indian um those asian mangoes that are sickly sweet that go with the sticky rice or more of the kind of african-y mangoes i actually like both yeah i just like any mango that's really ripe and tastes good yeah um, we don't like a sour like mango nice. i know no. it's the worst when like you open it up and it's disappointing because it's sour yeah, like avocados, they're like, <laughs> you open it up and you're like, oh, this is not a good one. <gasps> Always a gamble. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Can you tell our listeners um, where they can find you on social media for your uh, nutrition and for your Pilates? Sure. So you will mainly find me on Instagram. That's where I tend to hang out most of these days. Um, and as a dietitian, I'm there on at priya underscore tube and for pilates i'm there on at pilates with priya you'll also find me using the same handles on twitter um and over on facebook as well wonderful well thanks again you've been great thank you nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the uk's leading networks and publications Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4 on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.